There are certain truths in Scripture that humble us, sometimes to the dust. But if you're in the dust, that's a good place to worship. We're going to be looking today into 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 26 through 31. The title of the message, The Chosen and Called. A very important passage. It's a very blessed passage in the overall scheme when it's received and understood in truth. But the absolute sovereignty of God, and especially the absolute sovereignty of God in salvation, is offensive to the natural man. Yet it's a blessed truth to those who've come to know the Lord of glory. Have you come to know the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing the consciousness of sin? Sin's a horrendous thing. It's against God. And it ends in death, not simply the death of the body, but in separation from God, in eternal hell. And that still is taught in Scripture, no matter if it's left off in modern preaching. And it still remains the truth of God's Word. And if you've been brought to realize the awfulness of sin, and Wednesday evening I was bringing forth that that day I was meditating through the Psalms, and in Psalm 25 there's a verse that says, For thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon mine iniquity, for it is great. I made the comment, I don't think the psalmist meant that he was talking about a big sin as opposed to a little sin, but rather sin as it is in the sight of God and what it's done to man's relationship to God. If you've come as a sinner to behold by faith the Son of God, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, as your only hope, and you've trusted in the Christ of the cross. You're not what you were before. You're different. You've become a new person. Old things are passed away. All things become new in Christ. But that's not something you did. That's something that was outworked by God's grace sovereignly in you. And God in His Word comes to teach us that if you know Him, it's because He chose you to do so, appointed you to salvation. And so we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 26 through 31, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. 
but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. There's something in the human constitution. We come into this world with it by nature. There's something in the human constitution that is very difficult to be brought down that only God can really bring down. And that's human pride. Self-exaltation. Self-centrality. But that's exactly what it takes to make us realize that there is nothing in us there is nothing we are or have of ourselves that gives us any reason whatsoever to boast. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And nothing is so calculated to deal a death blow to human pride as to see ourselves as we really are in the sight of God. That will bring you down. That will cause you spiritually in some way to smite upon your breast. And in humility, feel completely unworthy to lift up your eyes to God. As the publican in the parable we earlier read about. That's a solemn thing. To see ourselves not as we see ourselves, not as men see ourselves, but as God sees us. What a solemn thing that is. And we learn about that in his word as well. And what he reveals to us in his word. And remember something if you have studied and read the Colossian or the Corinthian epistle. That the apostle Paul is showing that the wisdom of God far greater than all human reasoning and wisdom, than all of the philosophical systems and speculations of the Greeks and Romans, with which the Corinthians strangely were priding themselves. And it's going to be brought down. It's going to be brought low. To find that in the matter of human reason, human wisdom, human philosophies, that God actually sets it aside as useless in regard to salvation, the apostle has taught already in this chapter in verses 19 and 20. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? It was shown and is shown by the apostle that it was not to those who depended upon their own ability or their own human reason. It was those who came to depend upon God alone. 
as he is revealed in Christ and the cross. Christ crucified. And these who came to recognize that in the cross is their only hope that their sins were placed upon Christ, that they were brought in a genuine heart repentance, looking unto the Lord Jesus Christ and Him crucified for them, to trust Him alone and to give up all thought of any human merit whatsoever. These are the ones who are saved and are being saved. As the apostle taught in verse 18, the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. It takes everything away from man. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. And coming to understand that even believing in the biblical sense of saving faith, even believing was not of their own doing. It did not proceed and come of them. It came as a result of the call of God in their souls. So you have in verse 24. Unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And you don't want to know what's ironic in these, in the church at Corinth? What is so ironic? The most of them were not even in the society they were wanting to be in or desiring to be in. They weren't even in that society who deemed, were deemed the wise of this world. Yet, they still tended to pride themselves in those things, in human reasonings, in philosophical speculations, in intellectual attainments, in human ability. Problem is, they weren't from the high of society. They weren't from the intellectual elite of society. They were generally from the common classes of men. But as is common in fallen human nature, men do not not only recognize what they really are, they imagine themselves what they are not. And even believers can have this problem. Even we can fight with pride. Still lurks in your flesh. It seeks dominance over you. It's an enemy that wants to conquer you. And so, if we're going to have this pride put down, it has to come from a right view of ourselves. A right view of ourselves. 
leaves no room for pride in the presence of God. But it's not just to bring us down, as my grandmother and probably your grandmother or grandparents used to say, off our high horse. To see who God is. It's to see who God is. And to realize that the glory belongs only to Him. None of it to us. A true understanding and meaning of divine grace in salvation, sovereign grace, will both exalt God and bring down self-exaltation. That's what Paul's doing with the Corinthians. That's what's taking place here. He's showing them that not only does human reason play no part in salvation, not only do the saved find themselves in Christ because of any ability inherent in them, but that salvation, genuine salvation, glorifies God. Gives all the glory to Him alone in that it reaches down and saves the most unlikely among men. God is not limited in His ability to save. But most often, he saves those men would not consider savable. And the more, the higher classes of men that men esteem, God often passes by. Not all the time. There are some rich, famous, that God is pleased to save. Not many, as we learn in our passage but that God brings his people from the common classes of mankind shows that salvation is all of him. It's all of God. None of it of man. It's hard in this supercilious religious day in which we live, even among those professing to be Christians, to realize that the leading factor in all of God's work is not the salvation of men. The leading factor in all that God does is His own glory. As in Romans 11.36, Of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Not the happiness of man is to be our chief end then. Our chief end is to glorify God indeed. So, we need a true understanding of the nature and the meaning of grace only in salvation very important the apostle is going to show that the glory 
It belongs all to God. None of it to man in salvation. Very important passage of Scripture, really. And sometimes it's very important that we be reminded of these things. Why will no flesh, no man, no woman, no matter who they are, where they came from, what they attained naturally in this world, why no flesh shall glory in the presence of the living God. Verses 26 through 29. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. The effectual calling of God of those appointed to salvation by him. The effectual calling of God sets forth in those who are saved by his grace the very reality that his glory, not the glory of man, is the end of his works. And of course, when he's talking about the calling here, you see your calling brethren. It does not mean that the gospel wasn't preached to others. It's to be preached to all men. It's to be preached to all men. But when the gospel goes forth and is proclaimed, the inward call of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who knows those appointed to salvation the Holy Spirit brings some to an actual union to Christ by faith. They actually come to be joined to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. They, they are the ones who will persevere in faith. They are the ones who will remain true to Christ. They are the ones who will grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To the Thessalonians, Paul says, We're bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a work that takes place in the heart by God's Holy Spirit. And in those in whom God does that work, they hear like they never heard before. They hear as defiled sinners, vile, undone, lost, desperate need of a Savior. And God shows them his Christ and his cross as their only hope. 
and they're brought savingly to know him. Now, it is not easy on human flesh, but it's not my business as an ambassador of Jesus Christ in his place, in the preaching of the word of God, to compromise his truth with anyone. It's my business to proclaim his truth, his word. And in this, it is God's prerogative alone to save. Salvation is God's prerogative. No one deserves it. No one deserves God's salvation. That God in mercy and in great love chooses to save some, that's not a marvel. That's not the marvel at all. The sinner, the one who's brought to a real conviction of sin and realizes, I'm lost. I'm heading for a judgment that I can't avoid. I'm a sinner. Undone. Poor. Needy. I have nothing of myself. That God brings some to that and shows them his cross, his Christ. That God would choose any to save out of this fallen human race. That's the marvel. Unless God did a work in you, you would remain forever in rebellion against him. You have no interest whatsoever in the things of God until you perished. But if you've come by God's grace to a genuine repentance from sin, and trust in Christ only. Man, you're blessed. More than you could begin to realize. God calls those who would never otherwise love him. Well, men love a God. They don't mind a God who does something for them. Oh, yes, he'll do something for me. Fear that kind of attitude has never come to know the living God. That's not worship. That's self-centrality. That's not the knowledge of God. They don't come to God and trust Him and bow before Him and worship Him because of what He can do for us. But because of who He is and what He has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the cross of Christ. And when he saves, you know what it turns to? What Paul said to the Ephesians in Ephesians 1, to the praise of the glory of his grace. His grace alone in salvation. Well, then, don't you think powerful preaching is used in the salvation of sinners? Maybe the methodology that we could devise in a soul-winning course that we could press upon men. Not according to Scripture. According to the Word of God, it's only by the power and work of God's Holy Spirit that salvation comes. 
by the power of God's Holy Spirit. When he testifies to the preached word of God to the soul, when he testifies and gives the truth of the message of Christ and his cross, then men are brought to savingly embrace, believe, and trust Christ alone. So we have it here, of course, in verses 22 through 24. The Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. But again, the Apostle Paul is not here dealing with the call in and of itself, but what it means and what it shows about the salvation of God and about those who are indeed saved. He's already proven the ineffectualness of human wisdom to bring men to the knowledge of God. Again, as he says in verses 19 and 20, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And he shows how the simple preaching of the cross effected accomplished what 4,000 years of prior human history did not do by human ingenuity and suasion and reason. So he says in verse 21, For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, study the heathen world until Christ came, died, rose again, ascended, sent forth the Holy Spirit, the gospel in power to the nations. 4,000 years of darkness among the heathen. God could not be found, could not be known by human searching. Proven after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching. That is, the thing considered foolish, Christ crucified to save them that believe. Now what's he doing? He's showing the kind of people whom God chose, appointed to salvation, and calls to faith in Christ alone. And shows this is of God, not of man. It's all of God. None of man's doing. Not of man's ability. Again, verses 26 through 29. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty 
and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. So what is Paul saying in essence? Think about it. He says, you who do believe, you who have been called, think about it. In the main, you are not among the wise of this world. In the main, you're not among the powerful of the world or the high-born of the world. You're among the nobodies of this world. Ooh, that's smart, doesn't it? You're among the nobodies of this world. You're in a pretty good position. Because the Lord Jesus Christ prayed in John, or rather Matthew, chapter 11, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Why? Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. God is God, sovereign over all things. Not moved by human sentiment or ingenuity or ability. But what he, the living God, purposed in himself. They were generally, from among those, the high society considered foolish, weak, insignificant they were looked upon by those high mighty ones with contempt and they were treated often as if they did not exist you see your calling brethren take note of yourselves he is saying one historian wrote, the whole history of the expansion of the church is a progressive victory of the ignorant over the learned, the lowly over the lofty, until the emperor himself laid down his cross or his crown laid down his crown before the cross of Christ. Why did God choose such as these in the main? To make up the majority of his people. Why does he choose the common people in the main? To make up the majority of his people. We're given a very ra a weighty reason, aren't we? In verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. When these things are understood, it's a death blow to human pride. God didn't choose these because they were the nobodies of this world, by the way. It wasn't because they were of the lower class 
as considered by the world. It wasn't because they were considered the ignorant. It wasn't because of anything in them. He did so because he would not allow corrupt, perishing human flesh to glory or boast in his presence. Where's the glory of man? Where's his glory? Where he ends. Where he ends. Where man ends. No matter what he attains. No matter how esteemed by the world. No matter the riches he may amass. All flesh is as grass. And all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth and the flower thereof falleth away. That's man's end. He ends in grave, in the corruption of the grave. And then must stand before God because it is appointed unto men once to die, but what? After this, the judgment. God doesn't take any regard as to whether one was rich or poor, white or black, male or female. What a word. You want to know about man? You learn about man. We learn about ourselves by nature in God's holy word. I know we're in a day that doesn't want to be heard much anymore, but it's still the truth of God and it's still the truth that will stand. You know what the psalmist said about man? Not in his worst condition. In his best state in the world. You know what God said about man in his best state in the world? My, how solemn. Man at his best state is altogether vanity. You know what the truth is? Everything outside of Jesus Christ is vain. All of it. Everything under the sun. Oh, you can have things for a little while in this world. You're going to lose them. You're not going to take them. I think of what David wrote in Psalm 144. Lord, what is man that thou takest account of him or that thou makest account of him? Man is like to vanity. His days are as a shadow that passeth away. We never know when we wake up in the morning if we'll be here in the evening, do we? We don't know what a day may bring forth. We like to put the thought of death far away from us. But we're not here long. We're not here long at all. Vanity. Vain. Empty. Corrupting. Perishing. Our bodies are perishing. The highest of men in this world, the highest positions that can be attained in this world, 
not simply the lowest, the highest are still guilty, defiled, fallen sinners. In the day of judgment, God does not take notice of whether one was rich or poor, in great power in the world, or oppressed. All men have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All men by nature, whoever they are, whatever they attain, whatever positions they may acquire, whatever possessions they may have for which they live their lives, instead of for the glory of God, It is God's prerogative whether he chooses to save or not. That's God's prerogative. Man has sinned against the living God. And this remembrance of where God and his gospel of grace found them and us who have been called who believe, who've heard the gospel, who turned our backs on ourselves in this world to come to Christ and be his and his alone. This remembrance of where God found us, where we were when we came to Christ, is designed to keep the perspective of the call of Jesus Christ in its right place. No one is going to stand in God's presence and attribute the least, any part whatsoever, to his or her wisdom, to his or her will, to his or her birth, to his or her station in life. There is no human contradic uh, contribution that the sinner can make. It's a very important message. The completely sovereign nature of divine grace that salvation is of the Lord indeed. The completely sovereign nature of divine grace and salvation leaves absolutely no place for flesh to glory. None. None whatsoever. As another. God's choosing such people like them is asserted to have the same design as the cross itself to save them, but at the same time to shame and nullify the very values in which they were currently boasting. The election of such people reveals the ultimate divine intent that no flesh should glory in his presence. To obliterate completely all human grounds for boasting 
for self-sufficiency and thereby to cast one completely in trust upon the living God. How blessed if you've been brought to the place as a needy sinner to throw off every thought of marriage and come to Christ only and trust him alone. To be able to say with Augustus Top Lady, nothing in my hand do I bring. Simply to thy cross do I cling. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. But at the same time, this calling to salvation reveals by its very nature and by those who are commonly called by it that it's none of man, none of man's doing. It's all of God. It's God's doing. It reveals something else, the wondrousness in the heart of God, in love and grace, in the salvation of sinners. Were it not for divine grace alone, I would certainly perish. How about you? If it wasn't for sovereign mercy that God saves sinners, I go on in my own way until I stood before God and ended up in hell where I deserve to be. God saves sinners, those who deserve to be in hell. That's a solemn thing, isn't it? What a day when one comes to realize if God should send me to an eternal hell, that's exactly where I belong. But God is merciful. Aren't you glad? Abundant in mercy. Out of this world, out of every nation, kindred, tribe, tongue, people, God chose an innumerable host to bring to himself, to populate an eternal new heavens and new earth. What a glorious God. What a wondrousness in God. Instead of the whole human race perishing in sin, he chose a vast multitude to save. And so, where is our only place of glory? Where is it? In something we do? No. In something we contribute? No. Verses 30 and 31. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Both the origin 
and all of the effects of union with the Lord Jesus Christ are totally of God. They're of Him. The origin? Only of God. But even the effects, all of them are still only of God. Of Him are you in Christ Jesus. Therefore, where is there any place for flesh to glory in his presence? No flesh shall glory in his presence, but of him are you in Christ Jesus. You see, the living God, the infinite holy God, the unchangeable, magnificent, glorious God, who is the reason for everything, the faithful God, who always keeps his word, the sovereign God, who performs his will without any doubt at all times, is both the cause and the consummator of salvation. In verses 8 and 9, First Corinthians 1 who shall also confirm you unto the end that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ God is faithful by whom you were called unto the fellowship of his son Jesus Christ our Lord listen dear believing saint you are dependent upon God to keep you you're dependent upon him to sustain you by a faith that is miraculously given by God. All of the riches of God's wondrous grace, all of them are all in Christ. And all of them belong freely to the regenerate and believing because they too are in Christ. Christ is himself the believer's wisdom. He is the wisdom of God. And if man considers the cross foolish, the foolishness of God is stronger than is wiser than men. All of this salvation in him, all by his cross, is made known to the called who look to and trust only in him, in him alone. Yes, God has means. This is a means. God chose the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. His word, yes, is a means. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul says to, to young Timothy, Continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. The greatest riches you possess in this world you can put in your hand but by God's grace only can it be put in your heart. The riches of God in his word, in his truth. Oh, dear saint, how you and I owe everything to the grace of God. All of it, completely. 
How you and I should have hearts that desire and seek Him above everything. That worship and bow in His presence. To give Him the glory that's due unto Him alone. Christ, the wisdom of God. The lowliest believer has a higher wisdom then than the wisdom of this world. The lowliest believer has a higher wisdom than the wisest of this world without Christ. And all that follows, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, are all works of this wisdom. Christ is the believer's righteousness. We have none of ourselves. The only acceptable righteousness that brings us to be acceptable with God is the righteousness of His Holy Son. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. Only as it is applied to us by faith only. And God accounts us righteous not because we produced righteousness, because of His righteousness. And because we look to trust only in Him. And He puts that to our account. And the scriptures call that justification. Being justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the believer's sanctification. He is our sanctification. By His cross, by His blood, we are forever sanctified in Him. We are set apart to God in Christ. And that's what that word means. Sanctification essentially means to be set apart to God. It's through Christ that we are so. It's in Him and in Him alone. That we're sanctified. Christ is the believer's redemption. Redemption. Depending upon the context in scripture. That can mean. The means by which deliverance from sin. Is affected. Through Christ. His cross alone. By the blood of Christ. Or it can mean the result of redemption, the result of the ransom price that he, that he paid, which brings deliverance from evil and the work of God's grace and spirit in our hearts. It can also be speaking of what shall come in finality, in what the scriptures call the day of redemption. The day of redemption that guarantees that every believer, everyone who knows the Lord of glory and belongs to Him, shall in that day be reunited, soul and body, in the glorious sameness as the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, never to die again. Never to face death again. 
And the believer is not just interested in getting out of the pain and the difficulties and the hard things of this world. Sin will be completely over, gone forever. No more. No more sinning. That's hard for us to consider. That's difficult for us who now have a daily battle with it. But there's coming a final redemption. When body and soul reunited, fashioned after the glorious body of the Lord Jesus Christ, will be in the presence of God forever. Sin gone, over, past. the final redemption but it still all has its basis in the cross in the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ so we do have a place to glory we have a place to glory God forbid that I should glory save where save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world we have a place to glory we who by God's grace have been called and know the Son of God we have a place to glory in the Lord in him only so that though our flesh must be kept down. We've no place to boast. No place to glory in ourselves. Only in the Lord. Human pride brought to the foot of the cross, as it were. We may glory in Christ. We may glory in Him. So that though we're brought down as far as pride, we may soar. We may soar to God himself. To lay hold upon a love that will never quit loving us. To lay hold upon a glorious salvation that was purposed of God in eternity. To glory in the Lord and nowhere else. So here's a comment we can conclude with. I draw from another. In contrast to morbid, slavish abasement, Paul joins with humility the elevating consciousness of our true dignity in Christ. What greater dignity than to be in the family of God. He has brought us from the dunghill to set us among princes, made us kings and priests in his sight. My, what glory, but all of it belongs to him. That we may soar in joy, and the wondrousness of knowing our position in him. God help us 
that his truth and these things would be revived in our day to the glory of the living God. And may God bless the ministry of his own holy word. You have a hymn. What is it? 492. 492. 492. Let's stand as we sing. Would you mind substituting Rock of Ages? Yeah. <laughs> okay. What? Yeah. Um, plenty of it, and I'll try to just play along. Okay, we're good. <laughs> Take my life and let it be. Consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them Take my 
for 